Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast, and we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about. We've got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. I'm so excited to tell you a bit about today's sponsor, Music Masters Collective. They're a nonprofit organization that produces unique music events, providing opportunities for fans and artists to meet and collaborate in an inspired and creative atmosphere. Every week, Music Masters Collective hosts different events, all with the opportunity to learn from world-class musicians like Bill Frizzell, Kurt Rosenwinkel, Julian Lodge, Mark Rabot, Wayne Krantz, O'Teal Burbridge, the Milk Carton Kids, and so many more. At an event like Alternative Guitar Summit Camp happening this August, you can expect in-depth workshops with guitar masters, once-in-a-lifetime performances, the opportunity to play alongside your favorite musicians, and a lot of fun. You'll leave this event packed full of wisdom and with a whole community of musicians to create with. This all-inclusive week in the Catskills Mountains of Upstate New York is guaranteed to be magical. Scholarships are available, but spots are extremely limited. So visit www.alternativeguitarsummitcamp.com backslash inside to learn more. Osiris. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Inside the Musician's Brain. I'm your host, Chris Pandolfi from the infamous String Dusters, and today is the banjo-centric edition of ITMB. This is the episode that you want, the episode you need, and the episode that you are getting today. I hope you enjoy. And if you're going to have a banjo-centric edition of any podcast, your best bet is to ask the master, the legend, Mr. Bela Fleck, to join you. And he will be our guest a little later on this episode. Cannot wait for that. So much great stuff. So much ground to cover around his stunning new album, My Bluegrass Heart. We're also going to go back in time and talk about how his career unfolded and his artistic process, and all those good things. So stick around for that. Big shout out to our sponsors this season. Orvis is an official sponsor of the podcast, and I can't say enough great things about this company. They make superb gear for all your outdoor adventures, much of which is made in the USA up at their factory in Vermont. Personally, I'm a huge fan of the Helios Fly Rods, Super accurate, really, really great action, and I've been lucky to catch some amazing fish on those rods. And perhaps the coolest thing about this company is all of the conservation work that they do, stream restoration, restoration of native fish populations, and that stuff is so important these days, and we're going to be talking about that more a little later this season. We are also brought to you by ArtistWorks, a very cool, very unique online teaching platform that offers music lessons taught by 42 world-renowned master musicians. And we've had a few of their teachers as guests here on Inside the Musician's Brain, including Chris Eldridge from the Punch Brothers and Sierra Hull. They are incredibly skilled and thoughtful musicians and wonderful teachers as well. Artist Works, though, is much bigger than bluegrass. They cover a range of instruments and genres. 
You could learn just about anything there. And one of the coolest things they've got going on is their patented video exchange learning platform where you submit questions to the faculty in the form of a video, and then they check that video out and answer in the form of a video. So they really have a lot to offer, and you can check them out at artistworks.com. And we have another sponsor today on the banjo edition of Inside the Musician's Brain, and that is Ricard Banjos. My friends Russ Carson and Ned Lubarecki, both great banjo players, turned me on to Ricard. They are making the best tuners that you can put on your banjo these days. They're Cyclone 10 to 1 tuners. And if you're a banjo player, you know the importance of being in tune, especially on stage. It just really helps to get the music flowing and keep that inspired feeling while you're playing. And I've never encountered better, more accurate tuners. I've got them on several of my banjos now. And Ricard, they make all kinds of cool stuff. In addition to the tuners, they've got guitars, they've got banjos, tone rings, and it's all really high quality. So banjo players, make sure you check out Ricard. As always, we are also brought to you by Osiris Media. They are behind all kinds of great podcast content. And Americana Vibes, that's the String Dusters record label, and we're working on all kinds of cool releases coming later this year, including the new String Dusters record, which will drop just a few days from now. All right, on to the fun stuff. Let's go deep on the banjo. I'm surprised I haven't done this intro yet in 20-some episodes, but today's the day. And, you know, I discovered this this amazing instrument when I was in high school. I was a huge music fan. And my older brother, shout out to Jono Pandolfi and his amazing company, Jono Pandolfi Designs, for all your ceramic needs. Jono was a bass player, and so he was a Victor Wooten fan, and he introduced me to Bela Fleck and the Flecktones. Of course, I had no knowledge of what bluegrass was or anything, but I... I just fell in love with this music. And to me, when I think about what inspiration is and how that process unfolds and affects someone, I always think about this time in my life when I was just so taken with this new instrument and this new sound and also the unbridled creativity of the Flectone, seeing them live was and still is such an incredible experience. And I got my first banjo when I was graduating high school, believe it or not, a lot later than many of my peers, but I, I, was, I was into it and I got a, a quick start, put in my time, had lessons with Tony Trishka and Tom Hanway and, and later on Bill Evans. And I went on to be the first banjo principal at the Berklee College of Music in Boston, which was a great learning experience and ultimately met Andy Hall and Chris Eldridge, AKA Critter, in Boston before moving to Nashville to get the String Dusters rolling some 16 years ago. Time flies. Okay, so for a little context on the banjo, if we go back in time before the advent of bluegrass, the banjo was originally an African instrument that made its way to the U.S. during the slave trade. And originally, these early ancestors of the banjo had a gourd body. And the Cora is a great example. If you've ever heard the band Two Bob Crew, they've got a, a Cora pretty prominently on display. And it's always important to recognize the amazing influence that African music has had on not only bluegrass, but all kinds of styles. And, and that extends beyond just the instruments that originated there. So these early ancestors of the banjo make their way 
to the United States, and eventually the instrument starts to evolve in terms of both construction and the playing styles, the genres that it appeared in, and the gourd was replaced by a, a tone chamber with a skinhead stretched across it, sort of an early iteration of the modern version that you see today. Mostly played finger style, similar to like a claw hammer style, which is used for old time music. And believe it or not, in the late 1800s, the banjo became really popular among women, was sort of this like high society parlor instrument. And eventually it migrated toward jazz and ragtime in the early 1900s. And that banjo had four strings, a tenor, and was played with a pick, something loud that could cut through all the tubas and low end before you know modern sound systems were around the volume was a big factor. And after a dip in popularity, the instrument reemerged as a key aspect of folk music in the mid-1900s in the hands of luminaries like Pete Seeger. And here we're back to the five-string banjo with the, with the short string on top and more of a finger-style technique. And then ultimately, we have the emergence of the most influential banjo player of all time, the late, great, Earl Scruggs. And the crazy thing about Earl was that there was very little precedent to what he did. Of course, there were many banjo players who came before, but Earl's way of playing with three picks on his right hand and this kind of tapestry of rolls or arpeggios combined with elements of the melody weaved into those rolls was something entirely new. And it's so incredible to look back and see how that blueprint just sort of popped into his mind almost out of thin air. And to extend on on that and how incredible it is, still to this day, banjo players try to copy Earl note for note. And while a lot of the instruments, I would say all of the ins other instruments have really evolved stylistically in, in how technical and the way that people play, Earl's playing is still the gold standard for bluegrass. And there, there, of course, there has been much innovation and chief among those innovators is Bela, who we will talk to here in a minute. But the baseline technique is still directly derivative of what Earl developed. And of course, the instrument has made its way to new genres from jazz to classical, but the way that it's played, the technique, especially with the right hand, all comes from Earl Scruggs. So hats off to the great innovator, and thank you, as always, to Earl, who lives on forever in the worlds of bluegrass and the banjo in general. So after Earl, the, the technique that he came up with was innovated and tweaked by people like Don Reno, Bill Keith, Tony Trishka, Ben Eldridge, of course, Bela Fleck, who I mentioned earlier. And I have to take a moment right now to recognize the recent passing of one of the greatest descendants of Scruggs' playing, Mr. J.D. Crow. If you haven't checked out J.D. Crow and the New South, absolutely one of Bluegrass's most seminal bands. The guy was just a rock star on banjo, and his, his timing, the feel of his playing, the power of his playing are just completely unmatched. So thank you also to J.D. Crow for his amazing music and inspiration. And we've also lost some, some other very notable banjo players within this past year. Sonny Osborne from the Osborne Brothers, the great Bill Emerson from the Country Gentleman, 
Dennis Kaplinger, who is an incredible player. And I also want to mention that there is a crop. There's always a new crop of great young players coming up. But some of the some of the real strong up and comers that you should check out. BB Bounis is the banjo player for a great band called Mile 12, and she is a phenomenal young player. I'm a big fan of Corey Walker. I love his style. And his brother Jared is the mandolin player in Billy Strings Band. And it must run in the family because they are both excellent players. Wes Corbett has been a friend for years and has a beautiful, relatively new solo album called Cascade and is the banjo player in the Sam Bush Band, doing some amazing things with the instrument. Check out Trey Wellington, who fronts his own band, the Trey Wellington Band, and has a solo record coming that I can't wait to check out. Allison DeGroote is another wonderful young musician. She plays Clawhammer style, and her stuff is just beautiful. Alex Genova from Fireside Collective is a great player who's got some really unique sounding stuff going on. My man Kyle Tuttle, who is currently playing with the Little Smokies. Kyle's out there ripping it up and making waves. Gina Furtado is a great young banjo player who has been nominated for the IBMA Banjo Player of the Year. Gabe Hirschfeld, who has recently joined a band called Full Chord Bluegrass. Gabe is a great player and a very knowledgeable setup and pre-war banjo guy. My buddy Russ Carson, who plays banjo with Ricky Skaggs, is one of the best young Scruggs-style players out there. And also he's got his amazing YouTube channel, 81 Crow, with tons of great banjo content there. And Max Allard is a great young player who I... I uh, got to check out for the first time when I was a part of the Banjo Summit this past year. And Max has a very unique and beautiful style as well. All right, let's jump ahead to my interview with Bela. Let's see if I can keep it together as I chat with absolutely my biggest influence and a person who has probably brought the banjo to more uninitiated ears than anyone else. He has endless accolades for all of his incredible music and his new album, My Bluegrass Heart, is one of the best banjo records to come out in years. Here we go. exciting day here on Inside the Musician's Brain. Our guest is a legend in the banjo world and the music world over and obviously a huge influence on me, Mr. Bela Fleck. Welcome to the podcast. Glad to be here. And how are you? I'm doing great, man. All things considered, you know, it's a strange time to be a musician, but we're we're getting by. We're getting ready to head out on tour. Fingers crossed that everything goes off, but, uh, you know, hoping that things are headed in the right direction and yeah uh, and i know you guys had a real close call with the fires there we did have a close call that was uh that was a devastating moment for our community out here and you know amazing to see how people have rallied around the music world and are supporting each other and maybe that's a silver lining just to see how close everyone is and and to see how we're all sort of picking each other up right now yeah that's beautiful well, I wanted to start just by saying a heartfelt thank you for all the amazing music over the years. And I know I've gushed on you at some point or another about, you know, how I, I would not have discovered the banjo if it wasn't for you. And, you know, you've provided 
so much inspiration and created so much great music. And I, I was just curious to know how it feels to be such a prominent ambassador for the banjo. I guess I'm kind of used to, to being me. I've been playing banjo professionally since, uh, let's see, 76. So it's been a long time. And um, um, I've been out, you know, out doing it, I guess, on a pretty high level most of the time. Um, so um, I think it's a continuum. Like when I heard Earl Scruggs play, he was the ambassador uh, for me. And then sure. when I heard Tony Trishka, he was the progressive ambassador. Um, and so I understand that if you if you live long enough and you're contributing, um, our positions change, the elders pass away and the young people come up and you move on up the food chain. Um, so I, I guess it's to be expected, but it's, it is, sure, it's odd. I mean, every once in a while, I, I, I think, well, this is crazy. Never expected my life to go this way. Actually, my, my dreams that I had like or have been exceeded so many times and I've had to make new ones, which I guess is a little embarrassing, but um, uh, pretty incredible because um, I've always worked really hard, but I, I, uh, I, I've never expected to pay off necessarily as well as it has. And I get to have a career playing music that I really love. It's very idealistic. Um, and, um, you know, I, may, I managed to stay away from most of the crappy part of the show, the show business world, you know. Well, I'd say you're doing okay. And I, it's got to be flattering, though, to hear from people, hey, you turned me on to this instrument. And then probably for a lot of people, myself included, you know, that is the thing that leads us back to bluegrass. Like when I discovered the banjo, I was a Flectones fan. And, you know, my older brother was a bass player and he was into Victor Wooten and we started coming to see you guys. And it was just this incredible moment of not only the sort of unique fusion instrumentation of the band, but the incredible creativity that you guys brought to the stage every night. And I'm sure that I know that I'm not alone in, uh, you know, the way that that was the thing that really introduced me to the banjo. But that's got to be a pretty amazing thing to hear from people. It is, and it's like a legacy kind of thing. It's like the Flectones are kind of far from my mind these days, not because I don't love them like brothers and, you know, partner experimentation um, friends, you know. I'm every, they're all such geniuses, and um, um, I miss them. But life has kind of moved on, and we've all found ourselves doing different things. And I know we're going to do it again. We were supposed to do it uh, in, in a couple of months, but it got postponed because one of the guys didn't didn't want to get vaccinated. Gotcha. And that's their right. But um, it's also my right um, as a parent to protect my kids who are not vaccinatable. So, so we're just going to wait, and I think we'll be able to bring it back when the time is right. But Let's aside from that, um, yeah, Flectones is just – we just had a joyful – number of decades, I guess three decades now of being an active band and uh, all of them. Again, this is a, this goes back into the list of things that you couldn't really plan or hope for uh, that have gone so much better than I ever could have hoped. Well, I want to talk a little bit more about the Flectones later, but I want to really dig into my bluegrass heart a little bit because this this album has really made waves. And I feel like for the last few months, you know, all I've seen on social media is this outpouring of gratitude and appreciation not only for the album but these amazing live shows that you guys have been putting on does it feel to you like this has been you know a, a big moment in your career coming back to the acoustic thing the bluegrass thing and you know all of the recognition that this album has received 
Yes, it has been marvelous. It's been a real reconnection with some of my dearest friends uh, that I came up playing with, Sam and Jerry and Stuart and uh, Edgar and and Mark Schatz, you know, folks like that. Um, Sadly, not Tony Rice, but um, that reconnection, but also this sense of going forward and and, um, recording with people that I I hadn't recorded with before. Because, you know, whenever I would do bluegrass, it would always be with Sam and Jerry and sure. Stuart and Mark O'Connor at the time when he was wanting to do it and and Tony Rice. And, and um, because Tony wasn't available, it kind of freed me up to try some different things. And I made a whole whole bunch of new friends and discovered sort of how, how many other flavors there are. I always had the sort of elitist kind of point of view. If I couldn't get Sam, I didn't want to play with a mandolin player. You know? <laughs> and of course, Thiele came along. Now sure. there's Sierra. Uh, you know, there's there's a lot of great mandolin players now. Yeah. And so it's time, you know, it's time for me to experience, you know, to go out and 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 uh, broaden my bluegrass horizons because they've changed a lot since the last time I checked in. Yeah. There's a lot of a lot of growth in in the whole scene. So it, it's really it's worked out better than I expected. Once again, like I I, I was thinking I was going to do an album with just some of the younger players, and then then I decided to bring in the uh, my old pals, and then. Pretty soon, it was everybody. You know, it was everybody I could think of that I really wanted to play with, and that just broadened my whole, again, broadened my bluegrass horizons to go. You know, Sam is the greatest mandolin player ever, but so is Chris Thiele, and so is Sierra Hall. Like they all do different things really, really well. So what a rich world the mandolin scene is, and and the others, uh, Dominic, of course, and, yeah, and was, Jacob Jolliff is another one, and there's just there's just it's full. It's great. It was very cool to see Dominic on there. I've known Dominic. I, I probably first jammed with him, you know, when he was three feet tall. And well, he's, uh, he's a lot taller now and he's, <laughs> he's one of the great ones, you know, he, he's so good. And I'm really glad I could have him. I haven't been able to tour with him yet, but I'm hoping that this will go on long enough yeah. and I'll be able to do that with him. One interesting thing that I read in a recent interview with you was that some of the tunes on My Bluegrass Heart have actually been around since Drive. And yeah. Maybe even and, before. And I was curious <clears throat> if there was a lesson in that about things that you figure out as far as your playing and your writing early on in your career that, um, you know, that, that just stand the test of time. Well, sometimes, um, you know, when you're prolific, which I am, I write a lot of stuff and then you forget about it, you know. Um, you don't know what you've got and you don't know how to assess it because the music doesn't come alive till it's put in a, in, in a band's hands. So um, ironically, I was out with Edgar Meyer and Zakir Hussein doing this sort of Indian classical bluegrass kind of combo, whatever you want to call it. And I showed Edgar that he always likes to play in B because he has he's in this weird tuning where he's got open Bs. Mm-hmm. B is his favorite key. So I, I thought, you know, I've got this old tune in B that I... Uh, you know, I, I never did anything with from, you know, way back then. It, it ended up being called Hunter's Moon on the new album. And I never thought it was really a, that good a tune or anything, but I played it for Edgar thinking, maybe he'll like it because it's in B. And he said, hey, that's a great tune. He said, I like your old tunes. I think I like your, I really like your old tunes. And I was like, oh, he hates my new tunes. That's that's <laughs> the way I think. He hates my new tunes, but he liked this old one. And so we started doing that tune. And uh, <clears throat> I always thought as we played it, we played it with Sakir a bit and it was it was good, but... I always thought this is really a tune for that Tony Rice rhythm guitar playing. It needs that kind of a thing. It's not right in this group. But what it taught me was that it made me think about old tunes again. I was thinking, okay. I have a pile of these old tunes that are like either they're nothing or they're something, and I don't know which. And the only way to find out is to teach it to some people and see what it sounds like on their instruments. 
So is so, that is that part of the process, almost like auditioning these tunes with other musicians and and seeing what really sticks? Yeah, and the tricky thing is if the musician is good, they can make shit sound good. So you know, <laughs> it doesn't it doesn't necessarily mean they're such great tunes, <clears throat> but they're um, the people that are playing them are good at solving problems. Like if somebody brings me an okay tune and I bring all my musical you know, powers to it to see what I can do, I can probably make it into a much, a significantly better tune just from the sheer amount, you know, how do I make this, change a couple of notes, figure out how to voice it, make it really sing on the banjo. Sometimes I can help a tune. And all of these people did that for me because they, they do that all the time. A lot of these guys are session players. Yeah. For me, the question is like, when you've got people who do sessions all the time, how do you make your session special? And how do you and do that? that? Well, that was the thing with Drive, like um, like oh, Sam and Jerry and Stewart and Tony Rice, they were on, you know, hundreds of records in that five-year period. Why would Drive be special? And I realized it had to come from me. I had to give them something different to chew on and they weren't that they weren't getting elsewhere. And luckily I do come because my New York upbringing and my jazz point of view and all the different things that make me me, I do have a different perspective and I listen to a lot of things that they don't listen to. So I might bring, I might come up with something that forces them to like, uh, you know, crack open their thinking a little bit and then all of a sudden they're alive. Mm -hmm. And so that's the thing. If you can capture that moment when everyone's alive on a record, you know, especially in those days when we did it all in a circle, uh, you know, in the studio, everyone played live, you fixed a couple of things, maybe you edited a couple of things uh, and that was it. Overdub, fix something if it wasn't working, but you would just play. It was just like, so there was a spark Mm -hmm. of the moment when it really happened. That's the take you kept when it really happened. You didn't you, you didn't do 10 takes past a good take. You did a good take and maybe one past it to be sure. And so, you know, the the way we record now where there's unlimited takes and there's unlimited overdubs doesn't always capture the magic that that that, that kind of recording could capture. A bunch of people in a room figuring it out live, solving all the problems together uh, in real time with the pressure of the deadline that, you know, at a certain point, we're moving on to the next song or the day is over and we'll never be back here again. Yeah. So that that's a tricky thing, but that, that's where the real pros come. You know, they, they, they shine. They really, the, they really pull it off. There's an element of the album that I, I love the, the little bits of, you know, before and after the track when listeners can hear you guys almost interacting. It's like you're in, in the room there and it just really gives you a sense that this music is being created, being captured live which is really cool. And you know, I was curious process-wise, how arranged is the music before the sessions get going? Because obviously the arrangements are so beautiful and in-depth and really designed to bring these songs to life. How much input do the musicians on the album have into the arrangement and, and how things are constructed before recording? It depends on the song, um, but... Um Generally, I like to have a rehearsal. I don't like to show up and like, even if I've sent people the tapes or whatever and the music, I don't like to show up and record it that day. I want to have a day where we're sitting in a circle with no pressure, okay. working it out. But usually I have a pretty strong idea and usually they everybody say, well, what do you want to do? And I'm like, uh, uh, I don't know. Let's just start playing. And I have a tendency to do the best. When I hear something, I either go, yes, that's it, or, oh, that's not it, but this is what you need to try. Okay. And that's, that's that instantaneous thing. And, and I've done okay, you know, on the sessions. I mean, Drive was done, you know, a couple of the guys practiced with me, but almost everybody did it on the spot, on the floor, in the studio. Um, but I don't really like the pressure of that. There's already enough, you know. Uh, and this stuff wanted to, you know, this stuff wanted to push and be a little bit more involved. Um, 
not be afraid of, of, of uh, arrangements and stuff, uh, and yet also have that life. So anyway, we would get together usually once with each group of people and play through what I thought was the arrangement. And then somebody might say, oh, I think we should do blah, blah, blah. And I would go, oh, yeah, I see how we can do that. If we do that after the third chorus, we could do that. Or, you know, I would hear something cool happen or I would just get an idea. And I get excited when everyone's there. So they have to put up with me. But um, but some <laughs> of the ideas are good. And, and the, the great thing about the modern recording, now that I've talked about how crappy modern recording is, the great thing about it is you can try a few options and you're not stuck. So if somebody has an idea and I'm not ready for it yet, or I don't believe it, we can always tr- take a do a couple of takes like that and then go back to the other idea that I might at the moment think is better. When I come back after the fact and listen back to everything we've done, then I make the decision as a new listener. I try to get away from the music, don't listen to it right away. And when I record, we don't overdub and fix things. We just do a pile of takes and then everybody leaves. And then I pick up the pieces afterwards. Gotcha. And so that's when I come in as, as an editor, not a performer or as a listener. And I go, where's the stuff that matters in this, in these takes. And then usually I manage to find, you know, a master take that really has it. But the way I, I get there is I, I make a graph of all the sections and, and I mark, I, I grade everything. How well did we, did, did we hit that section? Good. Did we hit, did somebody have a good solo here? Did some, and then I end up with uh, all of these takes, maybe I have 10 takes or something and I have um, check marks under the sections that are good. And when I find a take that has a lot of check marks, I figure that's kind of kind of be my master take. And then if I'm looking for a problem, uh, if, if problem so- solving, I'll go, uh, you know, I'll go look at my check marks and see where I have it. Like, oh, there's gotcha. a great mandolin solo on take two or, wow, we really nailed the ending on the, the last take, but we never did before that. So even though we were sounding better at take four, I'm going to grab that ending. Gotcha. Or, you know, whatever it is. And I believe in editing. I learned about editing from Tony Rice and David Grisman when I went out there uh, when Sam had cancer in like, I guess it was 83. And um, and I got to hang out uh, at, at Tony's house and I got to hang out at Grisman's house. And um, and they were all into editing. That was their thing. They didn't like to overdub. They wanted okay. to like play live and do a bunch of takes and then pick the best stuff that really happened. That's the thing about editing is it really happened. It's not like something you made happen by hook or by crook after the fact, it it takes the the, the best, because a solo doesn't exist by itself. It exists, a great solo has a great rhythm section too. Of course. You know what I mean? And, the, and they're interacting with each other. And so that's what you get by cutting live stuff together rather than um, like getting a solid take and doing some overdubs on it. Gotcha. Um, so I, it's more time consuming, um, uh, but um, the, the, the results can be very, um, very exciting and live. And then yeah. you get to use those live, that's the thing, something that happened just one time, and, I, and you remember, like I remember in my headphones, we're doing takes for two hours, and I remember by the time I get to editing, there's something I always remember, gosh, wasn't it take, some one of those takes, you know, Sam and, and Stuart had fell into this thing for like three notes, and it was just so cool, and where is that, you know, and I'll go find it and make sure it ends up in the master take. Yeah, well, it really comes through you know, for a band of musicians that doesn't necessarily play together all the time, it really has this amazing ensemble sound. And I think that's what you're, you're getting at just this live feel of the solos and the rhythm and the way everything interacts. It's, it's so cool. And I feel like it's a little bit of a jigsaw puzzle, but I, yeah, it's a little bit of a jigsaw puzzle, but I enjoy it. It doesn't have to be done that way. There's a lot of ways it could be done and it would work out good, but that's how I've gotten, somehow I've gotten into this convoluted way of doing things. Sure. Now my bluegrass heart is almost like, it's like the third part in, in almost like a trilogy drive bluegrass sessions. My, my bluegrass heart. These are, 
these are sort of your your prominent offerings that that fall under this bluegrass category. And I, I even read um, th- that you that you said this is not a straight bluegrass album, but it's written for a bluegrass band, which I think is cool and sort of almost indicative of where bluegrass is at these days. You know, the repertoire and the the types of songs that are being um, that are being created in a bluegrass style are really so predicated on the way that we play our instruments, you know, banjo and three finger style. And I was just curious to get your thoughts on everything that's happening with bluegrass right now, which is like more popular than it, it seems like it's ever been. Yeah. Um, well, I think it's kind of getting a, you know, a reputation as a great American art form. I mean, it, it has you know, for decades, obviously. But when you think about flamenco being Spanish music, you know, flamenco or Indian classical music being Indian, um, you know, bluegrass is our is one of our great American offerings, one of these great folk arts that has has elevated itself over the years uh, into something really we should we can really be proud of as a culture because it has so much in it. It's got the African American roots, the slave roots. It's got the Southern white roots, and now it's got. It's been peppered and uh, filled in by sort of the jam, um, yeah. the modernists of the '60s, the hippie generation, the the jazz, the jazzers. It's all mixed up in there together. There's so much in there, and yet when it's done right, there's an earthiness. Even to the stuff that I do, which can be sometimes pretty heady, there's an earthiness to it um, that's uh, very rootsy and very beautiful. So um, I don't know. I'm I, I'm really thrilled to be back in it, doing it. I, mean, I love all the different things that I've gotten to do, but I have to say. When I go play with a, an orchestra, I'm a poser trying to, you know, make believe I know what to do. When I go play with Chick Corea, I'm a poser trying to make believe I know what to do in a jazz situation with one of the greatest jazz pianists. When I'm playing with Zakir Hussein, I'm a poser trying to figure out how to play some kind of facsimile of, of an Indian-influenced way of playing the banjo. But when I play bluegrass, I know what to do. There's no question in my mind as to what yeah. to do. And so it's just such a relief after all of this, doesn't mean I can't innovate and that I can't explore and try stuff. It just means the basic root of it has been so has been part of me from the beginning. So it's not a stretch, um, and 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 I, I yeah I just know what to do. Yeah, that's your your native language, so to yeah. speak. Right. We'll get right back to my interview with Bela Fleck after this really quick break. What is a city without its music? The legacy of the New York Philharmonic is incredible. Nearly two centuries of history. That's a lot of music and a lot of stories. I was sitting on stage for the very first time thinking, I can't quite believe this is happening. Join me, Jamie Bernstein, as we explore the history of the New York Philharmonic. It's the NY Phil Story Made in New York, a podcast about a city, its people, and their orchestra. Listen wherever you get podcasts. Hey, everyone, this is Chris Pandolfi, host of Inside the Musician's Brain, and I want to tell you about one of our excellent partners, DistroKid. DistroKid is a digital music distribution service that helps all kinds of artists get their music out to the world. They have a ton of features that make distribution easy and effective, and you keep 100% of your royalties, which, of course, is huge these days. 
DistroKid is available for iOS and Android, and more than a million artists rely on DistroKid to get their music onto all the major streaming services. You can upload new releases, see your financial progress, get notified when you've earned royalties, withdraw money straight from the app, view and share links, check your streaming stats, and so much more. DistroKid has more features than any other music distributor. So if you're trying to get your new music out to the world, check them out today. Go to distrokid.com backslash VIP backslash ITMB. And what about Newgrass Revival? Going back in time, I feel like you guys were just so ahead of your time. You know, if Newgrass was on the scene today with everything that's going on around bluegrass and as you say the influence of the jam world and and the the cool and eclectic sound that you guys had but very much rooted in bluegrass do you feel like newgrass was was ahead of its time and you know how do you think a band like that would would fit into the music world today uh newgrass was you know right in its time from what i can tell it was right where it needed to be when it when it needed to be there um but it was um as as music should do, it was forging a new path. So it was on it was on the front edge, but I do remember people saying things to us like we like we wanted to get out of the country world. It was but it was the only thing that was offered to us, you know, where somebody wanted to like give us a, a budget and let us go make a record and try and get out there and grow our music bigger. But it was country, and so everybody it was all about the vocal, and it was all about less and less, you know, creative instrumental work um, in order to fulfill. Okay. The promise, you know, but I always remember us saying, why can't we go out and play with like Bruce Hornsby? Why can't we go out and play on shows with people that are, are not, you know, not Garth Brooks. I mean, Garth was great to us and we, you know, we love him and everything, but not go out and play with uh, Don Williams and not go out and play with, you know, open shows for, for country acts that were nothing like us. Um, and everybody would say, including our managers, that, oh, no, no, nobody's going to be interested in having you guys do anything like that. Or, How can we get on rock festivals? Ah, so then, nobody's going to be interested. But then a couple of years later, like Bruce Hornsby turned out to be one of the biggest Newgrass Revival fans ever who had followed Leon Russell and, and the Newgrass chapter and was thrilled to have us all get up on stage with him. Unfortunately, it was a little too late because it was just as we were splitting up that, that he embraced us and he actually had me play on his records and come out and play with him. Um, sometimes nobody was ever asking the right people, but like three years later, if we'd still been around, I mean, our, our last show was playing with the Grateful Dead at the Oakland Coliseum. Mm-hmm. You know, the dead crowd could have gotten interested in us. All think, kind of things could have happened. Not that, not to say that we did badly. We did well. I mean, we were on top of the scene that we could be on. Um, but there was something very powerful about that band, something like rocking about that band. And some of the offshoots um, that have come since um, you know, they just have a very different personality. Of course, I'm thinking of the Punch Brothers, who are, um, you know, all about finesse, and and it's a very different sensibility. Um, it's doesn't, it's not necessarily, it can rock, but that's not its primary focus. It's very much of a broader musical idea, maybe, you know, somewhat influenced by things like Strength in Numbers, which had a chamber quality to it. Mm-hmm. Newgrass was not a chamber group. It was a rock band. The bluegrass, you know, in, in a lot of ways, with a strong bluegrass underpinning, um, I but, think but that, you feel like you feel like the sort of like the the powers that be the the record labels the the managers gatekeepers were, they were pushing mm-hmm. you in the direction of country primarily. It seemed like the only place we could we could get anywhere. Okay. So we had our you know top 
we got it into the top 40 with a couple of tunes and it just never really took off. Um, and, and it just was, you know, coincidentally around the time that, that I met Victor and Future Man and, and Howard and started messing around with this Flectones idea. And I realized, you know, when I joined Newgrass Revival, I joined it to be part of the good fight because they were just such um, forerunners. They were such creative, such a creative force. And they went out there and played the midnight set, you know, for the hippies. And yet, that musically, they were way ahead of, of most anything going on. Um, you know, not more advanced than a, a David Grisman or a Tony Rice, but way on the front edge yeah. of things. And and I joined the band because they were doing like long jams in five four, you know, and and playing in, in unique. T- you know, they they had Sapporo. They had these instrumentals that would go on and on and on. And you could really, as a jazz wannabe, I thought I, there was room for me to do something with that. Um, but um, when the band, uh, you know, had you know after eight years, and all of a sudden you you get a chance to get out of your step van and get into a tour bus, and you get a record label to give you some money to make a a big budget record. Pretty soon we're adding drums and looking for songs that will work on country radio. That's just not what that band started out to be. So when I left, I was ready to go. And plus, personally, the banjo was the kiss of death for country music. The more I played on a record, the worse it was going to do. If Wait, what, do you, what do you mean by that? Well, nowadays you hear banjo on country music, but back then you very rarely did. Ironically, okay. I would play on someone else's record, like a Randy Travis record or an Oak Ridge Brothers, Oak Ridge Boys record. Uh, and or Gatlin Brothers record, and it would shoot to number one with the banjo very prominent. But on a Newgrass record, never. Like hmm. it was always, it was always. Uh, oh, we, they're not going to play that because of the banjo. It was just really confusing. Uh, so I kept feeling like it was going to be all about Sam playing mandolin and fiddle melodies on the records, and uh, you know, to and you hear the later records moving in that direction where it was less and less for me to do. I was getting one song on each record. It it didn't fit the rest of the record you know, Bigfoot or 7x7 yeah. by seven or whatever. So at any rate, when I left uh, to, to do Flectones, it wasn't because I thought we were going to be a big success. It was because I wanted to go fight the good fight that I wanted to fight and had fought for so long with Newgrass. Yeah. I wanted to go get out on the front edge and try something and learn. And plus, I was younger than the other guys. I had a lot more stuff going on in my head. That, um, so ironically, the Flectones did really, really well, surprisingly well, um, and that, that, that's just another example of things going well that, you know, shouldn't necessarily have in my life. I've just been really fortunate um, to make some choices that have, have connected out yeah. there. And, um, and, and I get to keep doing what I'm doing and what I love to do. Well, I guess, I guess that's one of the reasons I, I sort of think of you guys as ahead of your time, just because the path wasn't necessarily cut at that time for like a jammy bluegrass oriented band to go into clubs and sell hard tickets. It just, right. it wasn't that established a thing. And in the last 15 years or so that has just changed so drastically. It's so different now. It's, it's much harder now, in fact, I think. Um, but you know, I've had a couple of people say to me, Oh, you know, back when the Flectones came along, you could pull something like that off. And I, and I get my back up a little bit. I say, Oh yeah, tell me who else has managed to pull that off. You know, tell me how easy it was for like a banjo-driven weird jazz band to 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 get on jazz festivals or even bluegrass festivals or get any gigs whatsoever. The truth is it was easier than it ought to have been just because we had such a weird lineup. It looked so bizarre to see the electric drums and the banjo and the harmonica and the two black guys and the two Jewish guys, you know, getting along and and that Johnny Carson would put us on and we got all these opportunities because we were a um 
what do you call it, a, uh, a novelty group. Not because we were any good or, or not, but um, because we were weird looking. Yeah. And so, hey, we'll put them on TV. And so we got a lot of opportunities that way. And then people would go, hey, you know, I really kind of liked that. And then they'd come see us play. And so it was, um, I, I go between being pissed off when people say how easy it must have been to admitting that it was easier than it should have been. <laughs> <laughs> now, when it comes to the Flectones, I'm curious, was the goal to really push the boundaries going into it and and that, you know, was sort of something that you sought out or was that just sort of how it happened? You you collected these, you know, or got together with these amazing, unique musicians and that was just, you know, what, what came out or were you really trying consciously to push musical boundaries when you started that project? Well, let me put it this way. Um, there's two, two different pieces to this. One is I've been trying to do this for a long time. I had other, had other groups that I had tried to put together. I had a band called Banjo Jazz in Nashville with, with some really good players. And we went out on the road and I just discovered that we weren't actually good enough uh, as a group to, um, to succeed. And so I was demoralized about that, and and I was you know I was I was sad that it, I didn't I didn't see it working out, and I, um, um, so um, at that point I re- re- rededicated myself to being in Newgrass Revival. This would have been maybe four years before I left, but um, and, and this so, and this banjo jazz project was just not something that people were tuning into. When, well, when you- I'm. There's an album I made called Inroads, which had, and sure. it was good. It was yeah, good. It was, there was uh, vibes on it, and Mark Schatz played electric bass, Kenny Malone played, Tom Brody played, all of these people. Uh, and it was nice, but it just wasn't galvanizing enough to go out and build a career around. So I gave up on that idea. I enjoyed that group of people, but it, it wasn't the thing. The other thing that happened is uh, I was involved uh, with Edgar Meyer uh, with putting together a group that we called Strength in Numbers. And I think I came up with the name of the idea, uh, the name of the band because. I felt like any one of us, me or Edgar or Sam or even Mark and Jerry could draw a medium house. But if you put all of us together, five of us, five talents, we would draw a much larger audience um, to it. And I thought there's something to this idea of, of you know, a pile of equals, everybody with, you know, um, not, not just a, a band leader with a bunch of guys behind him, but all equal. And so when the Flectones started to appear in my life one at a time, they would jog this little feeling like, well, with a guy like Victor Wooten and with a guy like Howard Levy uh, and a guy like Future Man, uh, it's a different algorithm than the banjo jazz algorithm, which, which was also very gifted players. But every, every guy in this scenario was uh, inventing their own way of playing their instrument and nobody had ever done it before. And so it struck me that if these guys were willing to get together and, and go play, um, people would be flipped out and I would be flipped out most of all. Um, I was flipped out. <laughs> yeah, it's flippy outy. <laughs> that band is, but but originally um, I had this opportunity through Newgrass to do a Lonesome Pine special, which was this television show in, yeah, in Louisville. And uh, Vic Van Cleek, who who ran it, said, "Hey, you know, I'd like to have you do a banjo centric show. Whatever you want to do, but think big." You know, I said, I, "I said, well, I have the string quartet stuff." And he said, "Well, that sounds good." And I said, "I have stuff with the computer. I do. You know, that sounds good." And he said, "He said, what about jazz?" I said, "Well." I love to do some jazz. And he said, "Well, why don't you think big? Think about a, a name of some people that you some some people you'd like to you'd like to invite to play, like a Wynton Marsalis or somebody like that. You know, who's who do you love? Chick Corea. Ask somebody like that." 
to come because we'll have the budget to get them to come. And so I thought about it. And I thought about putting a band, like a backup band for me to be like the out front jazz banjo player in front of a, you know, a combo. And the more I thought about it, the more I thought, I don't really want to be that. I don't want to do that. Um, for one thing, I didn't have the nerve to go play with a Chick Corea or a, or a Bramford or a Winton at that time. But I thought about Howard and Victor, and I thought, well, these guys, they're more like equals. It would be just all of us together. Mm-hmm. And then, then uh, Vic, Victor introduced me to his brother, and then the, you know, that was it. And so we went and did this one show. We did five or six songs, and that was all it was going to be. And it just exploded. And now Sam Bush was in the audience because he, he had uh, his wife is uh, from Louisville. And he said he saw the moment the Flectones w- walked on stage uh, to do that set. He said that he knew I was going to leave Newgrass. Mm, I didn't know it. He insisted he knew it from that moment that I'd found it. And, but he was right, you know. And um, I think it was uh, you know, a full year and a half before I actually left. Uh, it was August and it wasn't until the beginning of the following year yeah. that, that I, I so I gave the band a nine month notice and I I actually thought it would actually help them out if I left because if they wanted to do this country radio thing get a drummer lose the banjo mm-hmm. fit right in but they had all had it too everybody was kind of you know ready for that change yeah. Sam was ready he said you can't quit I quit you know and things had worn on each other there were things that were getting frayed Sure. Did after eight and a half years of living right up each other's butts, you know, <laughs> as we did on the tour, you know, in the in the van, and um, but there's also a lot of love, love there, and pride yeah. in a band that uh, has never been equaled in its exact, you know, strengths. Yeah. Well, the Flectones, I just can't say enough great things about you know what what you guys have done, and so many great records, and it's cool to see some longevity now too, you know, I've seen performances in, in recent years and Telluride, you know, up near Boulder and, and just so much creativity and so much inspiration, I think flows from that, that ensemble that is so heavy on musicality, but also just tips the scales in terms of uniqueness. And, um, thank you. Thank you. I would love to do something new with the band. For me, it's always been a little bit, uh, underachieving to go out and play the, not that we have hits, but to play the catalog. Mm-hmm. Like I want to, with those with guys that creative, I want to go out and and like do a whole new thing. Mm-hmm. But it, it's hard, you know. It, it's a different time. It's hard to get everyone's attention and the amount of work it takes to 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 like re redefine the thing, which is really what I would want to do. And we kind of took a shot at it with little, with uh, uh, Rocket Science, and mm-hmm. there's some good stuff on that record. It's not like it sucks or anything, but I didn't feel like. Like, why do we need another Flectone record? What what could we do that would kick it to the next place? You know? mm-hmm. And so when we, if we're we to record again, we would have to get together and like commit, you know, some serious rehearsal time and then some serious touring time to go out and play it. And if everybody's in that space again, um, we'll do that one day. Yeah. But until then, it's it's way better than nothing to go out and play, play the tunes because they're, you know, the, the truth is they're dead unless someone's out there inhabiting them. And it, uh, it's a good body of work to go inhabit. It's it's fun. It's actually a lot of fun once I get over that preconception I have, which is the Flectone should be doing new music every day. Yeah, it's well, like the, the internet killed uh, the, the, the internet killed the Flectones because it used to be before everybody had their portable devices uh, at Soundcheck we would work on new music all through Soundcheck, but at a certain point everybody had their phones and they'd spend all the Soundcheck on their phone. Like when we we just started running the, the the songs from the show, I couldn't get anyone's attention anymore. And it was really disappointing, but I, I could see it slipping away, that that moment was sliding away. And everybody, honestly, 
like Newgrass, everyone had put up with me and my point of view for a long, long time. And they needed to go do other things and have other experiences, despite the success and the and the glory of of the of the the union of these talents. So, yeah. so it's all as it should be. Well, I look forward to hearing what you guys come up with in the future. And yeah, me too. That old body of work is legendary, man. And nobody's gonna get tired of hearing you guys play stomping grounds new south africa you know i mean there's just sunset road these are just some of the most classic tunes ever and um, thanks man absolutely i want to take a quick step back into the acoustic world because i've i've read a lot of what you've said about tony rice and obviously you know the acoustic world lost probably one of its most influential musicians of all time when when tony passed away here pretty recently and it's interesting to hear you talk about how he was such a seminal piece of drive and then bluegrass sessions. And then as we all know, Tony unfortunately declined and, you know, in his health and you had to move on and Brian stepped in and there's obviously, you know, so many other great guitar players, including those who were featured on, on your record, Billy Strings, Cody, Molly. But I want to hear from you. What it what was it like to play with Tony Rice? What what was it like to sit on top of that rhythm sound that he created that was so powerful and unique? It was like a magic carpet ride. <laughs> it really was. It was like all of a sudden your right hand would just do just what it was supposed to do with no effort whatsoever. And all of these things, you know, as a New Yorker trying to play bluegrass and and like trying to do it right. Uh, although, you know, we didn't always play bluegrass together, um, everything I would always be trying to do, I could suddenly do when he was playing. Got it. And so I was addicted to that. You know, any chance I could get to play bluegrass with Tony Rice or any kind of music with Tony Rice, um, the timing that he played on his guitar made it so easy to play banjo. Um, and it made everybody, it made it easy for everybody to play because not only was there, you know, this cement gluing everything together and inspiring rhythmically and dancing and trying. I mean, I've talked a bunch about how we would, uh, after a session when he would leave, all the musicians who were still there would like solo up his, his rhythm tracks and listen to his rhythm tracks and we'd go, what is he doing yeah. and why does it feel like that? Like a lot of times it was just bizarre. His right hand would be crisscrossing all over the strings doing all this stuff and there'd be so much syncopation. But the underlying um, element was a dance. Mm -hmm. It was dancing. There was never a song that was too simple to dance. There was never a song too complicated to dance. It had to like have this pocket. So it wasn't that he was like a, like there are guys now that are, pre are precision hounds. I mean, he wasn't really like that. He could play as precise as anybody, but um, the bigger picture was uh, was more of the deal. Um, he'd play precise if everyone was playing precise, but I've, certainly there were times I heard him all over the beat. But um, as far as his rhythm playing, it just inspired everybody to like, go to another level. Yeah, it's it's so incredibly rich in its tone and just how full of a sound it is. Like you say, it's it's not just like he's strumming chords. There's all yeah. this incredibly intricate cross picking. And I know when I'm getting ready to go out on tour, you know, I have a, a playlist that I like to play along with and and Tony Rice plays and sings bluegrass. A lot of that stuff is on there. And it's like you say, something about when he gets going on the rhythm and just the way the music sits on top of that is just magical. It is. And it's it's very selfless because you can't necessarily tell as a listener 
why it sounds so good. And you might attribute right. it to, uh, once again to the soloists who are always great, but they can't play like that on all the record. They don't sound like that everywhere. Yeah, know? yeah. So um, is there's this thing that, that Newgrass was really good at where we would all turn into one, like our rhythm would be so tight, it would just be like, you couldn't budge us. We were just, it mm-hmm. was like, every note was like a steel girder, bang, 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 bang. Yeah. And um, Tony was, uh, you could get that feeling with him as well. When I was talking about how he wasn't a rigid metronomicist, although he certainly could be, he could play that way. It was more about this listening ability too, the way he could um, figure out what was needed and, uh, and, and serve the music. So, you know, I, I love some, a lot of his soloing and there's a lot of times when I, I think it's, you know, it's killer. But to me, that's just a little piece of his gift. Yeah, yeah. Like I the vocals, that's... it's like just a piece of his gift. Sure. Um, the center of it is some, something about his guitar, his command of the guitar as a rhythmic, uh, driving a, a band from the guitar. Yeah, yeah, we're lucky to have so much great Tony Rice stuff to look back on and listen to. Yeah, have you uh, ever played with uh, uh, a Cody or uh, or Critter? Well, you played with Critter. Oh, yeah, yeah, right? I pl- played with Critter a ton. And yeah. I've played, I-, I was really excited to see Cody on your record because not too many, I mean, there of course a lot of people know who Cody is, but outside sort of the acoustic circles, he's not necessarily as well known. But man, he is such an incredible guitar player. And I just love the, you know, when he's playing, again, rhythm and lead, there's so much going on, but the ideas are really just all his own and, and yeah. so kind of cool and futuristic in a way. I love it. But he he has a little bit of that feeling. Like when I played with Cody, of all the tracks that we did, those were the, some of the ones that felt to me most like a Tony Rice kind of mm. kind but not not because he was imitating, but because he really understood it. And I've also had that feeling playing with with Critter, where the where you're floating and yeah. the banjo playing is effortless, um, and they understand something about the role of rhythm guitar that not every and Brian of course can do that, and Molly can do that. And uh, you know it's funny Billy Strings does something quite different. It's a little bit um, I don't know how to say it without it sounding uh, crass or something. It's almost more Neanderthal. It's almost a lot more like an old old black guy like it's like here it is get with me you know it's not like it and it's that's its beauty it's like he does so much with that um yeah and it's very fun to play with but it's a completely different feeling it's more like playing with with like like a supercharged doc watson who's going to kind of play his thing he's going to be like this you know but um where tony was that was this very very delicate dance so i'm once again i'm glad that there's all these different ways of playing sometimes uh what billy brought was just just the ticket, you know. It was so good. So uh, I'm a big fan of his because he's, um, he's one of the few guys who can drive a, a, a bluegrass band from the soloing, like a guitar soloist who can drive a bluegrass band with mm. his solo. Very few guitar players can do that. Like uh, they tend to play on top of the band, and it's very hard for them to lead. But he's a pile driver. Yeah. Like and again, the Neanderthal thing is maybe uh, I should be careful. I don't want him to hear that and think. What does he think? I'm just a you know a beast, but he is a beast. I mean, me and Jerry Douglas were talking about him when I first said, I think I'm about thinking about asking him to play, and Jerry said he's a beast. Yeah, and I was like, he is a beast in all the best possible ways. So I mean, it'd be really fun to see how he develops because people tend to lighten up as they go along. Uh, I hope he doesn't lighten up too much. Like some of those early Tony Rice records, you hear him, and it sounded like every single note was being played like with a hammer. Yeah, you know, like the early ones, and and then his guitar playing lightened up and turned into something quite different. 
So uh, I imagine something like that will happen with Billy as the time goes by, but I'm not in a big hurry for it to happen because I think <laughs> he's in, in a beautiful place. He is, and people are really taking note of what he's doing. I mean, he is elevating bluegrass. You know, when he plays a set, he plays How Mountain Girls Can Love and Fireball Mail. I mean, he's out there playing with a four-piece bluegrass band, and people are just, you know, yeah. really, really taking note. It's cool to see. Yeah, it reminds me a lot of... Um, well, a few things. Like I remember, like Nirvana and like bands from um, Seattle that came along, and it was like, at the time, I would listen to it and, and go, you know, there's been so much great rock and roll, and this isn't to me like go back to the Beatles and the Stones and all the kind of stuff that I thought was so great, and now this new stuff, I I, I didn't get it quite yet. But what I learned was that a younger audience needed a younger band to fall in love with the music. So it didn't sure. actually matter what, whether something was better or worse or where it even sat. And it was always gonna be their favorite stuff, the people that were that age. So in the bluegrass world, I think of like Yonder coming along, like like as Newgrass was still around. And um, and they became the Newgrass for a whole younger audience that wasn't mm-hmm. interested in old fart Newgrass. They were interested in some guys that looked like them that were their age group. And that's, that's just one of the important things to remember about music. It's very driven by the age of the listener. And there's sort of a, a, a prime period, maybe between the age of 15 and 32, where you imprint on what you love. And you really want those people to kind of look like you or maybe to be just a little older than you. <laughs> and it's, historically, it tends to be true. You know, you get locked into that that idea. Yeah, um, it, it imprints. And then later on, there's lots of great stuff, but it, it's harder for it to imprint on you that same way. But again, it has to be someone in your general age group for you to bond with it the same way. Yeah, he's opening the door for so many people who they don't know what bluegrass is. They don't know if they like it or not. And they also don't come to the music with any real sense of judgment. You know, they just hear this thing. And like you said earlier, bluegrass is not just compelling because of, you know, because of the the music and the songs, it's the organic tones and the way that those instruments, you know, the wood really connects to your soul. And and it's just amazing to see him opening that door for people and giving them that opportunity to fall in love with bluegrass. Well, absolutely. Well, now you, you guys have been doing the same thing for a long, long time too. I have to say, we haven't talked about you guys and congratulations on the Grammy oh, nomination, you. by the way, but you guys you have been out much. there. I remember when it was, you know, a much smaller thing and I didn't know where it was going to go. And I've just seen you guys just take your, take the center stage and just kick ass Thank and, you, uh, Bill. I appreciate yeah, that. Yeah, it's, it's really, really fun to see. And I just think you guys have that. Um, um, everybody really knows the music. There's there's a depth of understanding of where the roots of the, of the music come from in your band that a lot of bands don't have that are as creative as you guys are. So I'm, I'm, I'm glad you guys are also ambassadors for the music. Well, I really appreciate that. And so much of that influence comes from you and, you know, that generation of players you and sam and jerry you know we've listening we've been listening to you guys forever and it's not it's not just compelling because it's virtuosic the chops all of that is part of it but you know we've just been so inspired by the musicality that you guys bring to the table and you know that's always been our goal is to take bluegrass and and sort of put our spin on it and then put it out there for people and let them decide well, if you don't put your spin on it, then there's no point in doing it. Is the way I look at it. Yeah. Then you're then you're well then you're um you're you're a uh, what's the word uh, an amateur like you're doing it for fun, um to you know because you love it. But um to be an artist, you have to put your own spin on it. You have to own that spin. Uh, otherwise, there's really not a lot of point. There's there's already the originals. 
Yeah. So you gotta you gotta be your you gotta be an original too. Yeah. Well, we're working on it, but I really appreciate yeah. you saying that. You and, are. Um, you know, we've we've we're finally getting back out there on the road. And, you know, it's it's been such a such a weird last few years. And yeah. And, Tell me about it. You know, getting <laughs> back into the flow of performing. That that's another thing I wanted to ask you about. Performance mindset and how you get ready for a show and and if all of this time off has changed that process. And I know for myself and my bandmates, we've talked about how that regularity of taking the stage night after night, playing a hundred shows a year, it's something that you really get in the flow with and you almost don't question that process. It becomes pretty innate. And now we've had all this time off the road. So what is that process like for you? How do you, how do you feel like you get ready for a show and get in the zone to perform? Um, well, like you said, once you get in a role, once you've been playing a few shows in a, in a row, it takes care of itself. And in fact, you don't help by practicing all day. You actually need to let yourself recover from the night before and you need to be very relaxed and then bring your, you know, bring your focus to the show. Of course, you can go fix things that went wrong the night before or tr work on some trouble spots, but you don't want to play all day. But up until the tour, um, this, these last um, tours that I've done now, I've done, I guess you could say three, um, I have bust ass. I play all all I can, and um, and it's been pretty hard to regain my ability to the to the point of where it was before pandemic. Until I started playing every night on tour. Okay, that, that's a like you said, that's a process. Um, but then there's a point when all of a sudden I realize, you know what? I don't have to play all day. I'm playing six nights a week. I'm doing the sound check. I know the music now. Um, we're going to run the hard stuff at soundcheck anyway, or the things that had trouble the night before. And now I just need to relax and be, Yeah, you know, and that's a good feeling when you get back to that spot, because um, I, I sure didn't feel that way when we started this thing back up. Well, I know one conversation that I have had with friends, musicians, my bandmates is how great your playing sounded on this tour and on this record, man. You sound like you're at the absolute top of your game and oh, you know thank you abs absolutely i really mean that just you know like i said the technicality is a part of it but all of the feeling and emotion that comes out through the music that's not necessarily an easy thing to achieve to blend those those two for it to be intricate and complex but also be like you say almost you you say neanderthal we use the term caveman you know just yeah. like something that's like got roots and just just hits, you know, but I, I really feel like you're nailing it on this tour. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I, I feel good. I feel like um, a lot of that becomes like a habit. Like if you get used to playing um, a certain way, then you just need to keep playing that way. And so for me, I try to play that way all the time, whether I'm um, practicing with a metronome or playing with one person before we go on or, or you know, by myself in a room, I always try to play that way. Um, and I know people uh, who uh, you know save it for the show. And so, so you mean you just you just try to make that full musical statement in every situation, whether it's rehearsal, warming up, or on the stage. It's always trying to be in that one phase. I always do. I, I always try. Like if if we're at rehearsal, this and I'm soloing on a song at rehearsal, on a sound check, whatever. I'm trying just as hard as I'm going to try on the show. I'm, I, I try to play it with, you know, everything I've got uh, every single time. And I think there's there's sort of um, uh, a confidence that you have to have when you, and, and being confident when you don't know what you're gonna play is actually tricky. You know, um, 
You know what I mean? That's what improvising is all about. You have to be like confident, like I'm owning this, but I don't know what I'm going to play next. Yeah. At the same time, I heard a great interview on On Being with Bobby McFerrin. Yeah. Where he talked about, uh, I don't know if you've heard it, but he talked about the trick to jazz um, uh, improvising is don't stop. Never look back and don't stop. Go yeah. Keep going forward. And so I think that's one of the things, because there's almost nothing you can't recover from if you just keep on plowing. Yeah. Just keep on going and wait for that opportunity to get back on track, you know, just keep on play with everything you got. And so um, there's been some opportunities to do that. Um, I'll I'll just tell you a little bit about like the most horrifying and wonderful gig in my life that I think I just had my last gig. Um, You know, (laughs) we always judge ourselves on our last gig, right? (laughs) So last gig was Carnegie Hall with the big band, like everybody from this record, not everybody, but uh, everyone I could manage to, to wrangle at one time considering how how much bandwidth it took to have. I think I had 14 people on stage. I had Chris Thiele, I had Billy Strings, I had Sam Bush, Jerry Douglas, everybody doing the big concert of my life, playing Carnegie Hall, sold out. And uh, and Very so cool. I got on stage and as I walked out there, uh, I thought, God, I'm only hearing one, one, you know, we're on these ear monitors. There's no, there's no monitors on stage, so we can use really nice mics and have yeah. a good sound. Um, so, so it's all in our ears, which is great. It, unless they don't work. So I walked out on stage. I, I was about to walk out and I said to the to the guys, they're saying, time for you to go out. And like the band walked out on stage, everyone was out there jamming. I'm, I'm walking out, making my big entrance. And I'm going, I'm only hearing one side of my headphones. And um, and they said, well, it's probably this big metal door at Carnegie Hall. Once you walk out there, you'll the wireless will kick in and you'll hear both sides. So I said, okay, uh, I guess I'm just gonna have to go for it. So I, so I walked on out there, nothing, one side. Oh. I had no mandolin, no dobro. All I had was guitar and fiddle, uh, and so no Sam Bush, nothing. And so what um, happened next? And no, and no banjo. Well, the banjo was in the middle, so I only had a little bit of banjo, which okay. I didn't need because I, because uh, I knew what I was playing. Yeah. So anyway, it took about five or six songs before we finally figured out that um, you know my headphones had had blown up. One side had blown out at sound check, and I didn't notice it because it was must have been right when we stopped, and um, we didn't have any spares that that worked. And so I ended up taking out one ear and um, panning everything to the left ear and doing the whole show with the, the, only one ear. And so I went from like, oh my God, after all the work I took to get to Carnegie Hall, practice, 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 <laughs> this is how the story ends up, is me just being miserable in the worst possible situation, not being able to hear the guys, not being possible to play well, no matter how much I, how much I care and how much I wanna play well. And so as the show went on, gradually I started to find my center, maybe around the sixth song, I committed to the one ear. You know, I'm trying to MC, I'm bringing people on, I'm playing, all this stuff is going on in my head. And at a certain point, I get I got mad. And I was like, I'm, I'm not gonna let this bring me down. You know, I'm, gonna, mm-hmm. I'm going for it. And then at a certain point, that fight or flight kicked in. And all of a sudden I went from, you know, maybe I would have had a good show from the last, two thirds of the show was maybe the best I ever remember playing. And maybe I wasn't, maybe it wasn't as good as I think it was, but what happened is I I dropped every solo plan that I had in mind. Like usually I had some Mm -hmm. idea of what I was gonna do. I just went. Yeah. And I I hadn't, I don't think I've played that way in a long time where I just sheer uh, fight or flight for, for, you know, an hour and a half of of a two hour show. Um, But I found myself doing all these things that I, that were completely unplanned and do, playing with an authority that I hadn't played with. It was like anger kicked in. Huh. Um, so, you know, 
anything can happen at any yeah. time from from like sheer agony to sheer joy often within a few you know a few moments of each other somehow Some, i feel like it ended up being a a, a a mammoth win because i didn't let it take me down and because i cracked out of my ruts into some different kinds of playing yeah um and and the whole show didn't tank in fact it ended up being a, a great show but some something unexpected sort of brought you into the moment in a way that is not you know the normal thing that happens at a show exactly yeah. Exactly. And sometimes that's the best thing that happens. I don't know if you've ever had a show where something goes terribly wrong, a fire alarm goes off or, or you know, all the lights get turned on or somebody makes the, a joke that just cracks everybody up. And then all of a sudden you're playing better. Everything just changed. Um, and you're out of your, oh, it's another show and I've got to play like this and I got to play like this on this song. I got to play like this on this song. And I, I, I want to do my best thing that I always try to do here. All of a sudden you're just like, all of that goes away and you're just having a, you know, a real live experience. Yeah, and in some way it's almost like the judgment meter, which is kind of always running in the background. And I, I, I haven't heard that on being with Bobby McFerrin, but I, I heard you talking about it and, and that quote about taking a solo and always just moving forward and sort of the other part of that is not judging what came before. That's a big thing, like judging um, can really get in the way of things, and yet there has to be a time when you do judge. So I, I'm a real proponent of, of the idea that there are times when you pr play freely with no judgment, and there are times when you judge, and the judgment is best done when you're not even playing. The instrument is not in your hands. Okay. So, I, so if you don't want to get better, you know, don't listen to your playing and don't be critical. But if you want to get better, listen to your playing and be critical at a safe time when you're not emotionally invested in what you just played. Okay. Like get away from it. Give yourself a breath. Give it a cool listen. Don't get upset and go, am I happy about the way I'm sounding? Uh, what do I need to do to improve it? Or in the case of like the Bluegrass uh, Heart album, um, do all the takes. Don't listen to anything. Don't come out and listen to takes and be critical. Just do, do 15 takes um, and enjoy the process. And then after everyone leaves, get on your critical hat and sit down with a pen and paper and judge them with a different part of your brain. You can't do both at the same time without damaging uh, one or the other process. Right, and let let that judgment be a productive, constructive thing that informs right. the way that you play. But then ultimately, when you go out on stage and it's time to do the real thing, the practice is putting that down so that you can just be in the moment with the music and the other people who you're playing with. Yeah, it was very hard to do that, for instance, at the Ryman, where we did the, the, that same show we did at Carnegie Hall with the big band, um, because I knew we were filming it and it was going out live. So there was a little piece when I've been listening back, working on that show to mix it, and I can hear that slight self-consciousness in, in me that is a little bit like, oh, darn, I messed that up. I'll play it again so I have an edit piece. <laughs> you know what I mean? This kind of thinking thinking like a producer, not a player. And um, a lot of the time I managed to overcome it, but it, it is a problem doing both, having both hats. But um, So how yeah. do you overcome something like that? Is it, it's just practice, right? It's just reps, it's conscious, it's mindfulness and, and practice. Well, it's that those multiple nights are good. And, you know, every gig not counting so, so massively is a great sure. thing too. If every gig is Carnegie Hall or the Ryman, uh, you'll get used to that too. You know, yeah, um, and and on some level, you could say that this whole last tour with uh, Sam and Jerry, you know, and and Stuart and Edgar and and Brian was kind of like that. Every show was, you know, a, a eighteen hundred to two thousand seat theater, 
full of people. They were just as important in terms of who was there as the Ryman was just a similar number. But the Ryman was being filmed and streamed live. So that put some extra onus on it, although it shouldn't really have had that much more onus than any of the other shows. Yeah. Um, well, played to a lot more people, you know, on those other shows. If you add them all up, then that one, that one, even with the videos. Yeah. Well, it's been it's been so cool to see. Just the reaction to this album has been tremendous, and the outpouring of of kudos and gratitude on social media. You know, it's so well deserved, and it's such a beautiful album. And it's been such an honor having you on the podcast today, Bela. I can't thank you enough. Hey, my pleasure. Thank you, man. It means a lot coming from you. Really hope we get to cross paths soon and uh, be well. We'll talk soon. We will, and be safe out there and have fun. Thanks, Bela. Well, that sure was cool. Huge thanks to Bela Fleck for joining me on the podcast today. Huge thanks to all of you for tuning in. Huge thanks to our sponsors. Orvis has got all your outdoor and fly fishing gear needs covered. ArtistWorks is the go-to online music learning platform these days. And Rickard Banjos are making some excellent banjo-related gear. Check them out. We are also brought to you by Osiris Media and Americana Vibes. New String Dusters record is out on February 18th, just a few days from now, so stay tuned for that. And the String Dusters will be my guest on the next episode of Inside the Musician's Brain. I'm going to sit down with all of my bandmates, instrument in hand, and talk through the songs on this new record and how they came to be. And that will all go down right here in two weeks as we go back inside the musician's brain. Hi, this is Henry Kay, host of the number one music history podcast, Rootsland. Come with me on a journey to Kingston, Jamaica, where we explore the world of reggae music and the untold stories of some of the genre's greatest legends. From the ghettos and tenement yards where the music was born to the island's iconic recording studios. We are so excited to team up with Osiris Media, the leading storyteller in music. Because as you'll hear, sometimes the story is the best song.